Welcome to another episode of Unbecoming. I'm Dr. Bruce House Benson. Before we get started, don't forget that Unbecoming has a presence on Twitter at UnbecomingPod and Instagram at UnbecomingPodcast. Send your questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast to UnbecomingPodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. If anything that I've been saying in this podcast has resonated with you, I invite you to support the podcast on Patreon. The web address is patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast. Given that June is Pride Month, it makes sense to have some episodes devoted to subjects connected to the month. Today I want to examine the notion of queerness. Before I go any further, let me make something very clear. My reflections today will certainly be meaningful for those who identify as queer sexually. However, while I'm certainly interested in this sense of the term, I'm just as interested in its more general use. Although the word queer is usually used today to indicate one's sexuality, it had a different meaning originally. Most senses of queer are negative, though the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, lists at least one definition under the phrase being queer for as meaning to be fond of or keen on, to be attracted to. And such attraction could be toward a person or a thing or an ideology. But I'm hoping that I'll be able to talk about queerness in a way that many people listening can identify with. There are countless ways of being queer, and it's this experience of queerness or being queer that interests me. Put another way, I think everyone can relate to some experiences in life in which one just feels queer. For instance, have you ever gone to a new school, say, transferring into that school from somewhere else, right in the middle of high school? Or if you live in the United States, have you ever moved to another state? Then you'll definitely know what it's like to be the new kid. A friend of mine was born in Antwerp, but moved to another Belgian town at age nine. Interestingly enough, he was always known as the kid from Antwerp. That experience would definitely make you feel like you were out of place. I want to turn here to an important but admittedly difficult essay titled, Can the Subaltern Speak? It's written by Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak. It's on a particular work of Derrida, but I'm trying to keep the scholarly references and vocabulary to a minimum. The word subaltern might be new to you. Its primary meaning is someone who is of inferior rank or or status, though its secondary meaning refers to those who are marginalized or oppressed in some way. If you're wondering how that might get translated more broadly, you might think of the categories used by North American middle and high school kids, jocks, cheerleaders, nerds, theater people, well, you get the basic idea. While there's been an encouraging recent reclamation of the word nerd, it's still mainly used as a term of marginalization. Consider the point Spivak makes. The question is how to keep the ethnic subject from establishing itself by selectively defining an other. If you heard the episode on Foucault, you realize that determining who counts as other 
is a crucial part of community formation and identity. But of course, that terminology designating someone else as not one of us is created by the people who have the power to do that. If you're a nerd, you don't really have the power to reshape the dynamics of middle school so that suddenly you and your fellow nerds come out on top of the hierarchy. Just to be clear, whatever else I might have been called in middle school and high school, I'm sure nerd was an accurate descriptor. So I have a sense of solidarity with all nerds everywhere, as well as with all those who were grouped in ways that we wouldn't have chosen and would have preferred to remain uncategorized. Whoever has the privilege of categorization has the power. But let's get more specific here. Spiva claims that the Western subject is the one that has the luxury of the ethnocentric marginalization of the other, since the subject is, by definition, at the center. The point here is simple, but the consequences are complex and varied. Those of us in the West have had the economic power to see ourselves as being something like the center of the world. If you're a white woman of the West, you have less power than a white man. And we could go down the entire hierarchy constituted by gender, race, sexual orientation, etc. For instance, I'm a white man who eventually discovered that I was gay, which meant that my standing in that hierarchy changed. And I now have a little idea, just a little idea, of what it means to be a minority. But the fact of the matter is, if I dress in a way that looks straight, I can easily pass for a straight cisgender white man. Or to take another example, I've never had the experience of being followed around by the security guard in an expensive store because I was black. Thus, the difficulty is that when you have hegemony, you usually don't see it. You simply assume that you have power or privilege or opportunity because that's the normal order of things. As long as you assume that society has been rightfully structured, with you on top, of course, why would you ever want to question it? Moreover, if you were to try to lower yourself or level society, Spivak reminds us that even the concern for the politics of the oppressed can itself be a form of privileging oneself by deciding who or what counts as oppressed or marginal. Or to take a different example she provides, if you were to see a Hindu goddess as validation for feminism, Spivak wants to remind you that such a choice is, in her words, as ideologically contaminated by nativism or reverse ethnocentrism as it was imperialist to erase the image of the luminous fighting Mother Durga. In other words, although the British attempted to downplay the goddess Mother Durga in Hinduism was problematic, any move by feminists to see her as a feminist icon is, alas, also problematic. Spivak goes on to conclude that there is no space from which the sexed altern subject can speak, since one can be marginalized either as a feminist or as a nativist. In effect, Spivak is saying that the female subaltern has no voice, no ability to get others to listen. Having grown up in India, 
And then having reached the academic heights of being a university professor at Columbia, just, just as an aside, university professor is really the highest honor a university can give. It's the, 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 that title, that there's, there's just no title as long as you're a professor that's bigger than that. Anyway, someone like Spivak certainly understands both marginalization and centrality. Of course, those who speak more than one language and have lived in more than one country realize that this problem is just endemic to societies everywhere. Put another way, there are many ways and situations in which one can be queer, to appear queer to others and to appear queer even to oneself. While I'm queer in the sexual sense, I do not think that queerdom is composed solely of the LGBTQ plus community nor that queer interpretation is simply about gender construction. However, I do think that it takes some experience of being queer to understand why such a hermeneutic might be useful and even necessary, at least for some people in certain times. In her book, Queer Phenomenology, Sarah Ahmed investigates the phenomenon of orientation, particularly sexual orientation, in response to the rhetorical question, why start with phenomenology, she responds, I start here because phenomenology makes orientation central in the very argument that consciousness is always directed toward an object and given the emphasis on the lived experience of inhabiting a body or what Edmund Husserl calls the living body. She cites Alfred Schutz and Thomas Luckman's book, The Structure of the Life World, regarding orientation as the part of the fundamental structure not merely of consciousness, but also of the body. Here's what they say. The place in which I find myself, my actual here, is the starting point for my orientation in space. The very structure of intentionality is the direction toward a particular something against the backdrop of what Husserl normally calls horizon. While for Husserl this orientation is defined in terms of consciousness, Merleau-Ponty shows us that we likewise have a bodily intentionality, which means that our bodies are not merely unconscious, but are also in a sense conscious in its own way. Simply the etymology of the term orient is telling. The earliest and most basic meaning of the verbal form is to place or arrange a thing or person so as to face east. That meaning has to do both with building churches and burying people, placing the altar on the east side of the nave and the feet of the corpse directed toward the east. In one sense, wherever you are, there is some place that is east of you. For Husserl, a term like east is an indexical expression. In other words, it can be used in many contexts and from many different positions. But the reality is that the very distinction between oriental and occidental, between east and west, is one that is based on the privilege of being the subject and therefore the center, the person who gets to decide who or what is marginal. As I speak these words, I am quite literally speaking from the position longitude zero, or Greenwich Mean Time, which is the mean solar time 
at the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, London, the time at which the sun shines on the prime meridian. One might ask, how did London manage to get itself located at the prime meridian? How clever! But of course we're asking this question backwards. It should be more like this. How did the British have the hermeneutical power to establish their time as the norm on which all other time zones were based? The answer is that GMT was first adopted in Great Britain in 1847, a time in which it could truly be said that the sun never set on the British Empire, which also helps explain why the British would find time zones useful, since the UK itself is just one time zone. Think about the sheer power necessary to be privileged enough to have the luxury of designating oneself as literally the center of the world and thereby relegating the rest of the world as outside of the center. Or if you live in North America, here's an example. Do you know why you need to dial the number one before the area code and the phone number? There's a very specific reason, namely, that the U.S. and, turns out, Canada, both share the country code 1. How did it just so happen to work out that the country code for the U.S. is number 1? Hmm, we'll have to send in some of our best researchers to find out. But here's an even more interesting point. For many of you listening, you probably didn't even know that your country code was number 1. You didn't even know that your country just happened to get that coveted number, which means that you weren't even aware of the privilege of being number one. And that lack of awareness is how hegemony works. In fact, we can safely say that hegemony that functions best is the one that seems so obvious and necessary that no one would think of questioning it. But how does the issue of orientation relate to queerness? The earliest use of the term queer goes back to 1390, and its meaning is simply to ask, to inquire, to question. While the OED claims that this usage is still current in the British West Midlands and Scotland, most of us are more familiar with its derivatives, words such as inquire or inquire or query. But you can see how all of those terms have queer at their root. The earliest adjectival form of queer goes back to 1513, and it means strange, odd, peculiar, eccentric. Yet the OED goes on to add two further meanings. The first is of questionable character, suspicious, dubious. The second is out of sorts, unwell, as well as drunk. Consider the development of the meaning of the term. It goes from being simply a verb that is synonymous with to ask to an adjective that places someone or something in the category of strange or eccentric to a moral judgment regarding a person's character that places her in a bad light. But who has the privilege of the hermeneutical decision that someone is strange or even morally objectionable? To answer that question, we need to make a connection with the term eccentric, which originally meant not concentric with another circle. In other words, two circles without a common center. That meaning develops into the now obsolete meaning 
not agreeing, having little in common, that then develops in the meaning otherwise than centrally placed, and then finally, remote from the center, out of the way. But of course, something that is remote or out of the way presupposes something or someone that usually goes unmarked, a center that's so dominant and so commonly assumed that it doesn't even need to be named, and thus it's often even difficult to see. The British Empire was powerful enough simply to decree itself to be the center of the world in the 19th century, in a similar way that the United States could simply designate its telephone country code as one in the 20th century. It's not just history that's written by those who've won. The victors in the world order also had the luxury of placing themselves in the center and viewing everyone else as being on the margins. Other unmarked categories include white, male, cisgender, and heterosexual. These are all categories that go without saying, so that one is unlikely to say to friends or colleagues, this past weekend I went to a straight, white, cisgender wedding, whereas it's quite reasonable to think that someone might say, I went to a gay wedding this weekend. By definition, queer is precisely that which is marked as eccentric, outside of the center. I have vivid memories of sitting in the Tower Seminar Room at the Evangelical College where I taught, discussing various forms of evangelicalism across the global south. At one point I said to the other participants, isn't it odd that we in this room have no problem reading about African or Asian forms of Christianity and then deciding which of these counts as legitimate? There was some laughter, of course, but it was the kind of uneasy laughter that signaled a sense of discomfort. Part of that was due to being reminded that one is at the center, but due to realizing that, in terms of world Christianity, the center and the margins are in the process of switching places. The reality, at least then, was that American evangelicals still had the luxury of considering themselves to be the center of evangelicalism and seeing other forms of evangelicalism as mere imitations or copies of it, at least to the extent that they were even correct. But that phenomenon needs to be contextualized. In their book, Secularisms, Janet R. Jacobson and Anne Pellegrini point out that Protestant Christianity is so dominant in the West, they're particularly talking about the United States, but living here in Scotland, which is part of the UK, I think that's still basically true. The idea is that Christianity is so dominant that much of its influence has now simply become secular. Let's put it this way. The White House has an official Christmas tree, not a menorah. Congress opens its sessions with prayers largely prayed by Protestant Christians. The president takes an oath on the Bible, not on the Quran. And schools get time off for Christmas and Easter. Evangelicals have complained vociferously regarding challenges to vocal prayers in school and displays of the nativity scene on public ground. But those complaints come precisely as evangelical Christianity is losing its power. While evangelicals are wrong that the founders of the U.S. intended to set up a Christian nature, they are right in claiming that Christianity was the horizon or the dominant marker of the world in which the United States was inscribed. 
Many of the founders were theists, which is a development from Christianity that keeps many of its categories intact as hermeneutical lenses. Put another way, Jefferson may have excised the miracles in his version of the New Testament, but he still thought that much of Jesus' teaching was correct and worthy of following. The OED gives a further definition of queer, one that the editors consider obsolete, namely bad, contemptible, worthless, untrustworthy, disreputable. Those adjectives cover a lot of ground, and no, these definitions of queer are not obsolete. They are operative, at least in the background, of the now most common use of the term queer to designate homosexuality. I recently gave a paper on the almost completely forgotten homosexuals who perished in the Holocaust, along with the macabre joke that these men need no deniers, since very few people even know of what happened to them. For instance, it was only in this year's anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, a ceremony that's been going on since 1992, that homosexuals were finally mentioned. How homosexuals were treated by the Nazis is not something incidental. The Nazis considered, and now I'm give, going to give you a list, the lame, the mute, the feeble-minded, the epileptic, the homosexual, the Jew, the gypsy, the communist, as contragenic, those who stood in the way of a pure Aryan race and thus needed to be eliminated. It should be clear that, say, Jews and gypsies were outside threats to Aryan purity. While the Nazis imprisoned non-German homosexuals, the reality was that since they were not Aryan, they were not seen as a direct threat to the master race. Yet German homosexuals were different because they were an inside threat to both German purity and German masculinity. In 1928, the Nazis published a statement about the fight to preserve the German people. Germany can, and here again I'm quoting, only fight if it maintains its masculinity. It can only maintain its masculinity if it exercises discipline, especially in matters of love. Therefore, we reject you homosexuals, as we reject anything that hurts our nation. Anyone who thinks of homosexual love is our enemy. One cannot imagine a clearer statement of who occupies the center and whose lives are on the margins. If you know anything about the Christian church in Germany during the Nazi era, you probably realize that the Protestant churches largely aided and abetted the Nazis, even to the extent of providing Christian backing for promoting German purity. Most German Christians were anti-Semitic, and German evangelicals, that's basically what Protestants are called there, had an interpretation of Christendom that saw it as closely wedded to German nationalism. A notable exception was the Roman Catholic Church, which came under severe attack by the Nazis. Joseph Goebbels gave a speech in 1937 in which he claimed, and now I'm um, quoting from him, the sacristy has become a bordello, while the monasteries are breeding places of vile homosexuality. From his perspective, the very hierarchy of the Catholic Church was corrupt, since it depended on what he saw as the unnatural life of single men, which in turn promoted the spread of this unnatural life. 
Goebbels went on to close all Catholic newspapers and magazines, emptied the monasteries, shut down the Catholic youth organizations, and imprisoned about 4,000 priests. Put in blunt terms, Catholicism was seen as promoting homosexuality, and as Goebbels insisted, homosexuals had always been traitors to their countries. But of course, this view presents a huge problem. People in the LGBTQ plus community often ask, what is the problem of people of the same gender loving one another? Seen in that light, it's almost mystifying that loving the wrong person is such a problem. Equally, I have to say that the argument that gay marriage would undermine marriage has never made any sense to me whatsoever. But for someone like Goebbels, homosexuals are far worse. They are traitors to their country. Goebbels' claim that homosexuals are essentially traitors is so monumentally weird that it's hard to make sense of. Yet the reality is that throughout European history, those who were perceived to be on the margins of society were often accused of the same sorts of things. In his groundbreaking book, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, John Boswell writes, The same laws which oppressed Jews tried to wipe out homosexuality. The same periods of European history which could not make room for Jewish distinctiveness, reacted violently against sexual nonconformity. The same countries which insisted on religious uniformity imposed majority standards of sexual conduct. And even the same methods of propaganda were used against Jews and gay people, picturing them as animals bent on the destruction of the children of the majority. If Jews and homosexuals are destroying children, then they can certainly be seen as traitors in some sense. We tend to assume that homosexuality has been universally condemned throughout church history, but Boswell shows that this simply isn't true. During those times in which religious diversity was accepted, sexual variation was also accepted. And this leads us to a further definition of queer. As a verb, it can mean to ask, inquire, to question, such a definition would seem to be relatively neutral. Asking questions is common enough, but asking too many questions or questions that other people would prefer you didn't ask can get you into trouble. Socrates describes himself as disturbing, atapos, and creating perplexity, aporia. He has no place in society, and he leaves his listeners without a way. How much closer to queer can you get in ancient Greece? Note that Socrates is accused of two things. One, being an atheist or a heretic. And two, leading the youth of Athens astray. I think there's very little evidence to support the charge of atheism or heresy, but it's important to see that such a charge doesn't really require much evidence. Once such an accusation is made, it becomes the responsibility of the heretic to prove that she is not a heretic. As to leading the youth astray, there is no question that Socrates caused them to ask questions that were uncomfortable for their parents and probably for society as a whole. My own experience is that, particularly in a religious setting, if you are asking questions that other people are not asking, either because they haven't thought of those questions or because they're too afraid to ask them, you run the risk of being perceived a threat. You might have absolutely no intention of being threatening, but intention in such a case doesn't matter. 
All that's important is whether you are threatening those in authority. Consider Jesus, who was put to death for similar reasons. He called the religious authorities hypocrites. He broke laws regarding the Sabbath. He associated with those who were unclean, adulterers, prostitutes, tax collectors, and very likely even some homosexuals. And he was also interpreted as saying that he was divine. It's no surprise that the religious establishment of his day were afraid of him and saw him as challenging the established order. Here I'd like to turn to the final definition of queer as a verb. Besides meaning asking or inquiring, to queer can also mean to make a fool of, ridicule, to get the better of, to puzzle, flummox, confound, baffle. Let's go back to Socrates. If we take the dialogue Euthyphro, it's clear that Socrates makes a fool out of Euthyphro. My intro students sometimes read Socrates as a kind of bully. That is, he's simply mean to Euthyphro. While I can't provide anything like overwhelming evidence that such a reading is wrong, I don't think embarrassing or ridiculing Euthyro is the point of the dialogue. However, let's just leave Socrates' intention to the side. There's no question that Euthyphro does end up looking ridiculous. As far as baffling or flummoxing goes, Socrates is a master baffler and often leaves his hearers in the dust. One can read him as questioning many of the basic Athenian assumptions, which is always a kind of threat. From the point of view of the center, Jesus is just as bad, and perhaps even worse, since he claims to be a rabbi and thus a religious insider. Again, a threat from the outside of a society is, at least comparatively, easy to deal with. If Socrates had simply said, all Trojans are bad, Athenians would have celebrated him, since he would be reinforcing the center. But in asking questions about the very structure of Athenian morality or piety, Socrates sows doubt. Jesus does the same. He implies that the religious leaders may not be worthy of being followed, or at the very least, he questions their righteousness and their motives. We're finally at a place then where we can see why the phenomenon of queerness is such a problem. Simply by existing, the queer puts the normal into question. It's an internal threat, one that cannot be dealt with simply by saying something like, those bad people belong to another group or they're from another race or they have a different culture. It's not too hard to see why whatever appears to be queer must either be marginalized or eliminated. Here I'm making a kind of blanket claim. For instance, I think the practice of the Romans of abandoning babies with birth defects at the city dump is an instance of literally marginalizing whatever is perceived to be queer. But hermeneutically speaking, how do we think about ourselves as being puzzling or baffling or confounding to others? Gadamer talks about the other who breaks into my ego-centeredness and gives me something to understand. And he says that this Kierkegaardian motif guided me from the beginning. But what happens if you are the person who breaks into Gadamer's ego-centered consciousness? I did that once by telling Gadamer to his face that he was wrong. The look of surprise on his face was priceless. But he actually allowed me to explain myself and eventually agreed with me.
but Gadamer is unfortunately somewhat exceptional. I suspect all of us have found ourselves, at least from time to time, unheard by people who either cannot or will not understand us. Gadamer talks about the radically undogmatic person, the experienced person who is ready for new experience. Gadamer fully embodied that. His beautiful metaphor for how two or more people understand one another is this idea of the fusion of horizons in which my horizon is able to connect to the horizon of someone else. But how can there be any fusion of horizons if the other person simply doesn't get it and doesn't want to get it? Alas, there are too few radically undogmatic people and far more radically dogmatic. Queer people are often not allowed to speak. When they speak, they are often ignored. Worse, they are often heard by categories created in advance and thereby dismissed. To be queer is to have the hermeneutics of suspicion directed at you. But it gets worse. It is a truism of Gautamerian hermeneutics that one always brings oneself to understanding. But what if the self I bring is profoundly unwelcome? What if the we or I is not even seen as an equal human other? As much progress as the LGBTQ community has made in the last two decades, the language that counts us as persons is still rampant, particularly in religious institutions. But this is a manifestation of a wider phenomenon of the queer. Although it's been a while since I've lived in the United States, it appears, at least from where I'm sitting, that the problem of being queer is now part of American life. I could put this in many ways. One possible way is that evangelicals increasingly gained power after World War II and came to see their values as the true American values. You have to keep in mind here that Americans saw communism as a threat to the American way of life, so it was the Americans, you know, against the communists, and Americans saw themselves as Christian. Back in the 1950s and 60s, being American for many people involved believing in God. That's why the phrase, in God we trust, became the official model of the United States, and the phrase was added to all currency. This was in 1955. That was a time in which it was possible for religiously conservative Americans to see themselves as representing American values. Of course, growing up in an evangelical household, I remember the rhetoric against the liberals from an early age. Evangelicals saw themselves as threatened by the liberal media and by liberalism in every form. Why? because liberals were perceived as threatening the American way of life. In this threat was not from the Soviet Union, but Americans. Evangelicals were close enough to the center that Jerry Falwell Sr. could speak of the moral majority back in 1979, even though many of his views were not actually shared by the majority of Americans. Yet the reality is that any such majority status, if there ever was one, has largely eroded, which explains where we are today. Evangelicals have the political power in the United States that they once only dreamed of having. The ironic part of that development, though, is that the kind of conservative Christian faith represented by evangelicals is on the decline, and such faith is becoming less and less respectable. When I first started the previous sentence, I was thinking of a loss of intellectual respectability. 
For evangelicals, this lack of intellectual respectability is, well, nothing new. But now evangelicals are viewed much less positively than even a decade or so ago, primarily because they proclaim one thing and then act differently, what we normally call hypocrisy. That evangelicals overwhelmingly support Trump is a prime example. Though the ever-growing list of evangelical leaders who have been incredibly accused of sexual harassment and much worse is this good part of how evangelicals are perceived. In other words, that evangelicals have gone down in stature in the eyes of most people has much to do with who they are and how they act and much less to do with particular beliefs. Despite all of that, evangelicals have managed to create narratives in which they are the oppressed politically or culturally. Most of these stories, though, have little to no basis in fact. It's also true that the early centuries of Christianity involved persecution, though this has been greatly exaggerated too. Put another way, the story of Christians being persecuted has a long history. In an article titled, the Evangelical Persecution Complex. Alan Noble notes that the, and I'm quoting, the Jesus Freak movement of the 1990s, attributable to the Christian musical group DC Talk, put persecution front and center. As Noble puts it, being a loser in the world's eyes for the sake of Jesus was, paradoxically, cool. But the emphasis, perhaps unintentionally, was on being a freak rather than following Christ and accepting the consequences. That's the end of the quote. Persecution of evangelicals is a major theme in the incredibly successful Left Behind books and movies, which exalt the kind of persecution that happens in certain parts of the world, but frankly doesn't really happen in the U.S. Noble points us back to books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is a favorite among evangelicals. But as Noble points out, these stories of persecution were not designed to function as aspirational fantasy. And that is the real problem with many persecution narratives in Christian culture. They fetishize suffering. I've mentioned the Fox News commentator named Todd Starnes, who originally worked for the Baptist Press and was fired for, and here I'm quoting, factual and contextual errors. But that didn't stop him from getting a job on Fox and claiming that Christians in the United States are under severe persecution. The problem is that if you look more deeply into these claims, you come to realize that there's not much there. It's almost entirely exaggeration and cherry-picking. But Noble makes the point that evangelicals might actually be worried that they aren't being persecuted enough. Let's try to unpack that. There are many places in the New Testament in which followers of Jesus are warned that they may be persecuted for their faith. Noble puts it like this. For many evangelicals, the lack of very public and dramatic persecution could be interpreted as a sign that they just aren't faithful enough. If they were persecuted, they could be confident they are saved. This creates an incentive to interpret personal experience or news events as signs of oppression, which are ostensibly validations of our commitment to Christ. The danger of this view is that believers can come to see victimhood as an essential part of their identity. 
If that analysis is correct, and I think it is, then evangelicals tend to view any disagreement with them, or much worse, the cultural moving to positions not championed by evangelicals, as oppression or discrimination. When Vice President Mike Pence gave the commencement address at Liberty University, the school started by Falwell Sr., though then being run by Falwell Jr., he said the following, You're going to be asked not just to tolerate things that violate your faith, you're going to be asked to endorse them. Throughout most of American history, it's been pretty easy to call yourself Christian, but things are different now. But what, Mr. Vice President, are all these things that Liberty graduates will need to tolerate? Oh, that's right. You had to tolerate being the running mate of a serial liar, a sexual harasser, and an adulterer. Except that Pence didn't seem to have any big problems with being the running mate of someone who had lived his life in an almost completely unevangelical fashion. A 2017 study by the Public Religion Research Institute showed that evangelicals, and now I'm quoting, were the only religious group more likely to believe Christians face discrimination compared to Muslims. That point comes from an article in Sojourners, a magazine that could be categorized as progressive evangelical, titled, Why I Ditched the Evangelical Persecution Complex. Its author, Kevin Singer, describes himself as follows. I used to be one of those evangelicals who bemoaned anti-Christian bias whenever and wherever it reared its ugly head. Pushback on our beliefs and practices was almost always romanticized as a fulfillment of the persecution that Jesus foretold his followers would experience. But Singer goes on to say that he got a bit of a taste of actual persecution from talking to one of his Muslim friends who was, and now I'm quoting, ridiculed in public not because of anything she did, but because of what she was wearing. She told me that she almost always felt unsafe walking through grocery stores or sitting in a car alone. But then Singer comes to an even greater realization. Although he found that some professors at his secular university said unflattering things about Christianity, there was still a difference, according to him, between how Christians were treated in comparison to how Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists were treated. And here's his quote. While Christianity was made to look rational even when critiqued, their beliefs were suddenly dismissed as primal and backwards, not even worth entertaining. Singer finally comes to see things differently. He says, I began to realize that my claims to persecution were significantly overblown. How I framed these experiences said more about me and my privileges as a Christian in America than about the people and environments I accused of being anti-Christian. For one, I expected to be afforded a certain level of respect for my faith, whereas many religious minorities have come to expect the opposite. Second, much of what I experienced came as the result of having privileges that religious minority groups don't typically have. And there you have it. Singer comes to see that his expectations, that his Christianity would receive more respect than the other religions, was unfounded. He came to see his privilege as a Christian that comes in the West. We're nearly at the end of today's podcast, so I want to note the passing of Pat Robertson at age 93. He died yesterday. While one would prefer to say good things about the departed, one has to work a little harder to find such good things with Robertson. Robertson. 
He certainly can be commended for being bold and having achieved a remarkable vision that led to the founding of a university, the formation of the Christian Broadcasting Network, and even a 1988 presidential run. Let's be blunt. Anyone who accomplished all of those things must be judged successful in some important sense. Ralph Reed, the former executive of the Christian Coalition, says that it is undeniable whatever one thinks of his politics, and I was fortunate and privileged to be at his side, that transformed the Republican Party and with it American politics. I think that's an entirely fair assessment. A noted critic of Robertson, Terry Heaton, maintains that people don't realize how brilliant Pat Robertson really was at the time. Again, I think that's a fair assessment. However, I do want to end this episode with something that Robertson said that is highly germane to the subject of persecution of evangelicals. Here's what he said. Just like what Nazi Germany did to the Jews, so liberal America is now doing to the evangelical Christians. It's no different. It's the same thing. It is happening all over again. It's the Democratic Congress, the liberal biased media, and the homosexuals who want to destroy the Christians. Wholesale abuse and discrimination and the worst bigotry directed toward any group in America today. More terrible than anything suffered by any minority in history. I expect most of you listening are having a little trouble with the idea that evangelicals have suffered the worst abuse, discrimination, and bigotry of any group in history. If anything is the case, it's more accurate to say that evangelicals have perpetrated such abuse and bigotry. However, while that statement is so overblown it's hard to take seriously, perhaps Robertson is pointing to a shift in political and religious power. As it turns out, when the center shifts, the margins may no longer be marginal. The center and the queer may even change places. While that prospect is a long way off, there is no question that we are living amidst a change in how queer people are perceived. Anyone who thinks that it's now safe to be queer is a little out of touch with reality. But there is no question that the queer has, at least in some places and in some circles, moved away from being completely on the margins. It's still on the margins, just less marginalized. Thanks for listening to this episode of Unbecoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Al Benson. I hope you'll join us next week.